0: Good morning. If you'd like to turn to Ephesians chapter uh, 2, that's where we're going to be. Uh, Second half of chapter 2 this morning, we're going to be spending a little bit of time there. And um, let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you for a passage like this that sets into perspective the way that you have established the the possibility of of all kinds of diverse people to actually be reconciled to you and to be reconciled to each other. We thank you that Jesus is our peace, and we ask that as we look at this passage this morning that actually talks about a whole lot of things, that you'll help us to just perhaps get a couple of things out of it that we can um, that address us in our current uh, life situation that address us as uh, people who know you and are are growing in you we pray that you will encourage us through these words that you will challenge us we ask for your spirit because we are aware that without your spirit, we can't even understand the scriptures. And we need your help in understanding them. We need your help in applying them. And we ask that you would grant us that this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just in recognition of the fact that it is Father's Day, um, I want to encourage you fathers. There's a, We just read in this passage here that that um, uh, the passage that talks about that we, have, we both have access to the Father by one spirit, well, that's actually talking about two groups of people that fought and struggled with each other for centuries, the Jews and the Gentiles. And, um, and if you struggle, Dave, Dave mentioned that you know, fathers aren't perfect. Nobody's perfect. Fathers aren't perfect. Mothers aren't perfect. Kids aren't perfect. And um, if you struggle with being a father, uh, I think one of the best things that you can do is look to your heavenly father and look at how he interacts with the son, how the father and the son, uh, what are the things that shape that relationship? And I would encourage you to use that relationship as kind of a paradigm um, for your functioning as a father, because it is a challenge. And, um, and and God can help you even in basic human uh, relationships and dynamics like that. Um, this is a, a thick passage. There's a lot of things happening here. Uh, I think probably the main thing that we need to, to take away from this is how, as I said, and we'll look at this in a little bit more detail, is how God has brought two... Um, Groups of humanity, and we'll just say the Jew and the non Jew at this point. Now, if you go back in history, you'll find out that all the different tribes of people and nations of people thought of themselves as being very distinct from other people. In other words, the Greeks thought that they were superior over all races. There are, this is ancient Greeks, there are other races who thought that they were the offspring of God, so therefore they were superior over all the other races. Um, and human nature, human, uh, human history has been made up of uh, a broken humanity um, who doesn't know actually who they are because they've rebelled against God, trying to figure out who they are in, in, in rela- not in relation to God, but in opposition to God, or in opposition to God, maybe gathering around a particular idol and taking on identity from, from there. This was one of the big main themes in, that you'll find in your New Testament over and over and over again, is how the Jew and the Gentile is supposed to get together. How, what are the problems that arise in the early church? And uh, e- even though you, know, you could kind of raise in your mind, or you, know, you could say, well, who are the people? What people group do you have the most problem with in your own mind? Um, wh- who do you struggle with? Do you struggle with Muslims? Or you do, do you struggle with, with Hindus? Or you, do you struggle with black people? Or you, do, do you struggle with white people? Or you know, That's just part of what characterizes our human experience. But the gospel gives us the, not just the hope, but it actually gives us the foundation of, of uh, reconciling these issues that we might have with one another, uh, that we might have with other, with other human beings, the things that divide us. And these things have divided us since, you know, year one, and they still do. They still uh, bring a lot of suffering in, in the world. So let's get into this chapter And the first thing that Paul reminds these people, he says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth. So he's talking here about, he's he's talking to the Gentiles here in this letter uh, to the Ephesians. And he's saying, this is what it was like for you. Um, And he's one of the reasons he's doing this is because in the end, he's going to assure them that their sense of being second-class citizens, even in the church, perhaps, their sense of, um, in, in terms of who God is, uh, prior to Christ coming, if you wanted to, if you wanted to uh, have some relationship with God, you would have to adhere to the laws of the Jews, and uh, you might be allowed to come near the temple, but not in the temple like the Jews, you might be allowed to become a proselyte, but you couldn't really become a full Jew, I suppose, unless you were circumcised. And even if that happened, you still weren't one by blood. You still weren't one by heritage. And, uh, and we, we, we use all of those things to put people down and to control people. Uh, we use all of, of the diversity that we have among us um, And this passage is one that breaks down all of those. It breaks down the most fundamental uh, division in humanity at the time, the division between Jew and Gentile. And this is done through, uh, well, let me just read, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, so that's kind of the, that's the byword there, circumcised, or, and we're the circumcision, you're the uncircumcision, uh, which is an external mark made by uh, uh, people. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. This is verse 12. Uh, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. So that kind of sums it all up. That's what it was like to be a Gentile. And, this is, and and Paul is not saying here that that was a mistake, a mistake that the Jews made, that they saw you that way. He's, he's uh, acknowledging that that is, the, that is the lot of the Gentile prior to Christ's coming. This is true. They didn't have the covenants of promise. They were excluded from citizenship in Israel. They were strangers. And so they were on the outside. This is the way that God had chosen to work his redemption through this one people for millennia. But now things are are going to change. And when he talks about formerly, and at that time he's talking talking about um, before uh, they heard the gospel and believed. When they heard the gospel and believed in Christ, it changed everything. Let me just read to you Uh, a couple of verses that um, uh, that that we've already looked at in Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 13. It says, And you also, he's speaking to the Gentiles here, were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In him... When you believed, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And then over in chapter 2, verse 4 through 6. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, those those that's the uh, th- that's what happens or that's what happened when the Gentiles heard uh, the gospel and believed. Now he talks about them as formerly before at that time. This is what it was like. You were excluded, and then he he clusters the things they were excluded from. As I said before, that they were first of all they were separate from Christ. Excluded from citizenship uh, in Israel, they had no benefits of of what God had done for Israel over centuries and the blessings that God had given to Israel and the fact that God had said, you are my people and God had worked with with Israel right down through history. They didn't have that. Uh, They were excluded from citizenship in Israel. They were strangers and foreigners to the covenants these are covenants, covenants that God made. They, they, there's, it was a bond that God made with his people, and part of that bond is I promise you certain things. And so they are without promise. The Gentiles were without promise. And a promise is the basis for hope. Why do you have hope? You have hope in something because there's a promise that has been made that certain things are going to change, are going to come about, are going to be fulfilled. That's what hope is. And and to have hope, you've got to have someone who is able to make a promise and keep a promise. And this is what God uh, has done with Israel, but not with the Gentiles. He didn't have that kind of direct communication with the Gentiles in which he worked with them in a redemptive way down through history. So he sums it up by saying, without God, uh, without, without hope and without God in the world. So that's what it was like to be a Gentile. And we can forget at times how dark it must have been. We can read passages in the Old Testament and you can see how dark the world is without God and without, uh, without God's revelation, without the will of God being expressed to... Uh, he expressed it to Israel. But for Israel, for, excuse me, for the Gentiles uh, to know... Uh, the will of God, they would have had to have come and interacted with Israel. And of course, there, there was, that did happen in, in the Old Testament and ancient history, it did happen. You remember the uh, Queen of Sheba, I think, came and you know, wanted Solomon's wisdom. There were other people who realized the wisdom uh, of, of the uh, Israelites. Um, the, uh, some of the early Greek, uh, after Alexander the Great, they realized that the Hebrews had something special in their Old Testament, and they actually—I think it was Alexander the Great or one of his uh, generals—they uh, they, they uh, provided for the Old Testament to be translated into Greek because they knew that there was stuff special here. So there was there was a, a recognition that God was speaking to um, Israel, but there was also a reaction against that. We'll have a look at that in a moment. But we can often forget how difficult the world is uh, when it has either lost its in gospel influence or has never even seen any gospel influence. And it's probably easy, to, easy at times to see that in, in the past, but this is the, this is the situation today as well. Um, The the world is a a brutal place. It's a brutal place. And, uh, And we, in a sense, we're cushioned from a great deal of that because of the influence of the gospel in our culture. But we're also coming to a place where that's unraveling quite a bit. And things will not get easier in that sense. They will actually become more brutal as we move away from God's will from the revelation that we have of God in the, um, in the Bible. Uh, I w- this was just brought home to me a couple of days ago. I, just, I couldn't believe it. It was just like getting smacked in the face again when I saw the um, politicians uh, uh, slapping each other on the back and hugging each other and celebrating after they had just passed the law to, to make abortion much more liberal right up into 37 weeks. And even, even after that... Um, it looks like uh, you can kind of get away with just uh, killing babies uh, right up to, to full term. And it, but the, the, the shocking thing was to see the politicians uh, like they were going to go out and have a party. We're going to party now. Because we've somehow they think that this is the best that humanity can do, that this is the most humanitarian thing that they can do is to provide for the um, uh, killing of, of little babies. These are some of the things that came out in the recent uh, Barnabas Aid that shows us the, the difficulty that in spite of how we might think that the world is civilized, we know that, you know, it is, but we, we need to define that a little bit more, uh, that there are difficulties that we face. That This article, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, I'm just going to read some head, headlines here. This, is, this article was written about the challenges facing The the, uh, global persecuted church after COVID-19, what is it going to be like? Now, I know a lot of this is speculation, Um, but um, this this article is concerned about the rise of authoritarian governments. They're concerned about, uh, you know, the power invested and centralized in a dictator, and how often does that work for people? You know, in history, how often does that actually work for your good, for our good, when it just goes right up? All the power goes into one person, like in uh, North Korea right now, where apparently people are, have been put to death just for owning a Bible. Um, growing nationalism, leading to racism and even xenophobia. You know, we talk a lot about racism, but you know, racism is actually seems the, to be the default setting of human beings, if you look back through history. It's a default setting. They don't get along. And it could be racism against another race, but it can also s- simply be one tribe against another tribe of the same race. And they're divided, and they're, they're at odds with each other. A rise in religious extremism is another concern for this uh, post-COVID world. Electronic surveillance. You may have been following some of the Chinese... Um, uh, Communist Party's uh, investment and development of um, uh, of tracking their citizens, so that it looks like they're getting to a point where every single Chinese male will be trackable through DNA um, and facial facial recognition at all as well. And you say, "Well, it's no problem. I'm not doing anything wrong." Well, but the the, the problem is is that you have a a government who thinks that they've got to be able to nail each person all the time. Where are they? What are they doing? If they're doing something wrong, we can find them, we can get them. It's just, it's the total opposite of the freedom which we enjoy because the gospel sets people free and then people develop out of that. They develop politics that try to uh, guard people's freedom a rising conflict, rising conflict and fading civility. People uh, just losing, uh, not, not trusting their neighbor, not trusting the village uh, down the track. And um, people uh, just mistreating each other more and more. Uh, another issue that's come up is that there are increased suicides because of the stress of COVID-19. There are growing mental health issues as they call it in here. Another thing they're talking about is transition fatigue, people who are being moved from one place to another out of the war zone, uh, go into this camp and from this camp to this camp. People who don't have homes, who are displaced and they're displaced because there's people doing wicked stuff. And that that people just just go they become passive and hopeless. There's hopeless, there's no sense that anybody can actually even promise them a future that might look better. And then all of the economic uh, crises as well that, that uh, we don't really know the full ramifications of yet, but you know they, they talk about it regularly on the, um, uh, in the media. Uh, these are some of the issues that we are dealing with. And in a sense, these are, these are pretty narrowly focused. There's much bigger issues at play as well. So, as Paul said, uh, as he says here, they were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. When you are without God in the world, you are without hope. And that's one of the reasons that the church has not ever been let off its mandate to preach the gospel to the end of the earth, to the end of the age, both of those. Um, that is a mandate of the church. It's a mandate for this church, for every local church. has to be in some way seeking to fulfill that mandate of the gospel going out into the world. And you can do that in terms of local evangelism or world evangelism, supporting missionaries, praying for missionaries, uh, that's one reason we're having a prayer meeting next Sunday, mor- next Sunday afternoon is because we have missionaries. The missionaries that we support here in this church, some of them are undergoing some pretty severe stuff right now. Um, and, uh, and we need to be praying for them. And this just gives opportunity for us to gather together and do that. Now, that all sounds kind of doom and gloom, and it could be a lot worse. I, I made it nice and palatable. Um, but the, the, the Bible deals with these things. The Bible actually gives us hope. It actually does change things. So look at the sec- next section here, verse 13. But now, so this is what you, it was formerly like. It was formerly, um, uh, you were without uh, hope and you were without God in the world, speaking here to the Gentiles uh, through the letter here to the Ephesians, much, much more in the other letters of the New Testament as well in terms of Jew and Gentile. But something has changed now. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So just think just very quickly that this is a reversal of the fortunes of Gentiles. What did, they, what did they have before? They didn't have God. They didn't have hope. They were excluded from, citizenship, uh, from the citizenship in Israel. They were strangers and foreigners to the promises of God through the covenants. And, and now they have been brought near in Christ. Now that's really important for us to remember. It's in Christ. I've seen recently an attempt... Um, and this is—I'm not saying there's, it's wrong to try to do some of this stuff, and I'm not condemning everything. But I've seen recently an attempt to try to talk about the unity of Jew, Gentile—excuse me, of of Jews, Christians, and and Muslims. You know, what have we got in common? How can we have some kind of unity and not have all the hatred and stuff going on? Abraham—that's how we can do it, because we all have a common father in Abraham. But the Bible says that the reconciliation of people, it doesn't say it's in Abraham. It's in Christ. We might have historical reasons for historically connecting ourselves with Abraham as Jews, Gentiles, excuse me, Jews, Christians, and, um, uh, and, and Muslims. We all have our story that goes back there. But Abraham doesn't unify us. Christ unifies people. Christ brings people <laughs> into relationship with God, reconciliation with God, and on the basis of that, then we are reconciled to each other. And uh, let me just read on uh, here. Verse 13 again. But now uh, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is the death of Christ for us. That's what brings us near. It brings us near to God... Uh, Abraham doesn't bring us near to God. I mean, yes, he had the faith. And if you begin to look at Abraham through the New Testament, yes, he's, he's, the, uh, he's the father of, of faith in that sense. But if you just talk about Abraham without talking about the gospel, then you still don't have the reconciliation that we need with God. But we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been brought near to God. 14, for he himself is our peace. It isn't that we have simply sat down and decided to draft um, a peace declaration. Uh, we haven't sat down and, and decided we've got to uh, somehow we've got to, you know, say that we're not going to fight each other. We're going to we're going to love each other, uh, and we're going to write this out on a, on a piece of paper. And we get together with other races and we do that. No, peace is in Christ and in Him alone. He himself is our peace. And if you don't know him, you don't know that peace. If you don't come to him in faith, you don't have that peace established between you and God and therefore having the foundation to have peace with other people, to establish peace with other people. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, talking about the Jew and the Gentile here, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So there is something that kept the Jew and the Gentile apart, this dividing wall of hostility, and it's summed up in the law. And we don't at this point need to go and look at every single detail of each law to see which ones were uh, brought uh, the uh, the hostility, but it is the law uh, which brought hostility between Jew and Gentile. Let me read to you a couple of... um, a couple of things. The, the, the hostility between Jew and Gentile wasn't simply that the Jews had the laws of God and therefore decided that because they didn't want to be influenced by idolatry and the world, that they would stay away from the Gentile. Yes, that was part of their culture, separate separating themselves from the Gentiles, not, not eating with them, as, as in the book of Acts we've seen recently on Sunday night. Peter not wanting to eat at Cornelius' house and and other things in the New Testament. So there was that. So the Jew Jew knew that somehow uh, they were, the Jews knew that they were uh, separate from the world. They belonged to God, and they actually believed that they belonged to God, and that's what we should believe as well. God chose them in a very special way to be his people, even to be a light for the Gentiles, which they kind of failed at. But it wasn't just one way. It wasn't just that the Jews didn't want to associate with the Gentiles. It has been the other way for millennia. And the first one I'll read here is one that you would know about. This is from the fourth century BC. It's the story in Esther. Uh, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Haman's the Gentile, Mordecai's the Jew. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. It's not just good enough to kill this one guy. we got to get rid of all the Jews in this kingdom. And it goes on, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. They did keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Here's a king whose law was law, just like in uh, North Korea. And if you don't do what the king says, then that's not good. You shouldn't be in this kingdom. It's not good. They don't obey the the king's laws. You shouldn't tolerate them. Authoritarian governments can't tolerate something different other than what they say should be done. So that's 4th century B.C. That's the insight of Gentiles looking at the Jews, knowing the Jews are different, And not saying, oh, that's great. Isn't this diversity great? We'll tolerate them and let everybody, you know, live at peace with each other. No, we got to exterminate them. Get rid of them. Get them out of the kingdom. 500 years later, a Roman historian, the first century A.D., talking about Moses. This is Tacitus. You can find it and read it probably on the Internet. Moses, wishing to secure for the future his authority over the nation gave them a novel form of worship opposed to all that is practiced by other men. So here's a a Roman historian looking at the Jews and saying, this is what Moses did. He created a form of worship that is so distinct and different that it is opposed to what every other race does, what every other person does. It's opposed to them. This worship, however, introduced is upheld by its antiquity. All their other customs, which are once uh, perverse and disgusting, owe their strength to their very badness. 4th century, uh, century B.C., 1st century A.D., all the different Gentiles who look at the Jews, they also despise the Jews. So the Jews separate themselves through the laws given in the Old Testament, and they separated themselves to be holy to God. And the Gentiles, on the other hand, over and over, we don't even have to come into the 20th century, um, which is worse. Um, They look at the Jews and say, these these people are despicable. They they are totally uh, against humanity. They are against what we believe. All of the customs are against the customs that we believe. That we have their ways of worship are are ways of worship that are against the way that we worship. And and what they say they should do, we can't tolerate. We can't tolerate that a that a Jew won't bow the knee to a, a Roman emperor, or whatever the the uh, specific application might be. So there's this big wide, wide gulf that nobody can cross between Jew and Gentile, except Jesus does. But he does it uh, in his death by, as I'll read it again here. He himself is our peace, verse 14, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was, his purpose was to create in himself One new man or one new humanity out of the two, out of Jew and Gentile, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. It is through the body of Christ, through his physical body, that we are reconciled to God, whether Jew or Gentile. We are reconciled to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility, the cross puts to death the hostility between Jew and Gentile. And that is, the, the, the at least at this time, and I guess there's different ways to measure it, this is the fundamental divide between humanity at this time, between Jew and Gentile. And I just can't help but think if that's the case, if it's the case that Jesus is actually... Um, put to death the hostility between Jew and Gentile, what does that do for us as Christians when we find ourselves hostile with one another? What does that do for in a family where a husband and a wife are fighting? What does that have to do in a family where a, a father and his children aren't getting along, as we've been reminded that that happens? What does that do? If, if the, the major hostility has been set aside, if it has been abolished, it is, if it is, as it says here, he put to death their hostility, then when we find ourselves hostile with one another, when we find ourselves at odds with one another, when we find ourselves maybe even hating, we got to deal with that. That is, not, that is not a life lived in recognition of what Christ has done for you. It is a life that that misses the whole point of the fact that we have the foundation to be reconciled to one another. And it is established in the vertical reconciliation with God in Christ, the fact that Jew and Gentile are brought together in Christ, and the dividing wall of hostility, the law, is abolished. And so, as it says... His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. And this goes not just with Jew and Gentile. This has to do with any any race, any ethnicity, any culture. Um, Anyone from any background who comes to faith in Christ, uh, we have another person who has done that from the totally opposite kind of background. There is reconciliation. There is no longer any hostility there. They're in Christ, and they've been brought together in Christ. The world tries to bring about reconciliation in all kinds of ways. We try to make it a law. You've got to obey this law. You can't talk about this. You can't talk about that. But true reconciliation is only found in Christ. And I know that that's probably uh, saying that is, is probably thought of as, well, you're not very helpful or, or hopeful. No, I'm just trying to, to make sense of what the Scripture says and what the difference is because... People are reconciled to Christ. They come to God in Christ and then they are reconciled to one another. Let me continue now. Uh, Verse 19, consequently, because Christ's purpose is for making one new humanity and making peace, consequently, Paul says in verse 19, you, speaking to the Gentiles, are no longer foreigners and strangers. But you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And here's the opposite of where they've been. Remember, they were without hope. They were without the covenants of promise. They were strangers to the covenants. They weren't a people. They weren't the people of God. And now look what happens. Consequently, as a result of Christ's death, Jew and Gentile are brought together. They are no longer, the Jew, the Jew is, excuse me, the Gentile is no longer a foreigner, but a fellow citizen. They are no longer outside God's, whole, God's household, but they are, they are members of God's household with the Jews in Christ, who have come to Christ. They are built on the uh, apostles and prophets, and Jesus is the head cornerstone. They go from being not the people of God with no hope, without God in the world, to being, as it says here, uh, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What an amazing transformation. From a nothing, from a people without God and without hope, to those in whom God is going to dwell. And he does dwell in them even as Paul writes this letter. A temple being built of Jew and Gentile, and I'm only using those two here, I'm not using all the other tribes on the earth or races, in which God lives by his spirit. It's not a temple of stone. It's not a temple to an idol. It's not a temple to God's memory. Let's remember God. Let's talk about God. Let's think about God. Let's see what we can agree on about God. But it is a temple, it's not a temple of, excuse me, it's not a temple of religious aspiration where we get together and we know God's out there somewhere, so let's get together and, you know, kind of look for Him together. But it is a temple in which God does dwell by His Spirit. He lives in us by His Spirit. So God takes the worst possible things that we have done uh, in our division against each other, as humans' division against each other. And he brings us and he reconciles us to himself, to each other, and he lives in us. He builds us into this living temple, uh, but a temple in which God lives by his spirit. It is the total opposite of death. It's the total opposite of it, the inheriting death without God, without hope and without God. It is, there is no greater flourishing of humanity that, that is possible than having God dwell in us, than having him living in us, uh, his living temple by his spirit. This is our hope, and this is our joy, and this is our guaranteed inheritance. He's told them that. You are guaranteed an inheritance. And that guarantee is the Holy Spirit living in you. The Holy Spirit living in us is the guarantee. It is also the fulfillment of that guarantee is that the Holy Spirit lives in us. That God is glorified in and through his people. So, you know, I started off being a little bit negative, I suppose, but in the end, the thing is, is that God changes that. He changes that utterly. He changes it for every human being who comes to faith in Christ, that they are no longer people who are without God and without hope. But now he brings them... He reconciles them in Christ to him, to each other, and he says, you are my living temple. I am dwelling in you. And it brings about the the best kind of changes in human culture. That's not the whole point. That's not the point of the sermon. The point of the sermon is that God dwells in us, that he takes us from death, he gives us life, and he builds his church into a holy temple in which he lives. And that should give us hope. And that should also, in a Father's Day way, it should give you fathers something to not just aspire to, but to practice. How do you practice that stuff? How do you practice this kind of reconciliation, having peace with God and setting the pace for your family, for your wife and your children and your grandchildren and whoever else looks at you because you're a father? I trust that you will do that, uh, but that we will all do these things and, and, and uh, realize that it, it, is, it is the greatest hope and joy that we can have to have God dwelling in his people. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for your son, that through his death he could bring the worst uh, dynamics of fallen human nature and culture. He could bring those things Uh, change them around, challenge them, break their power by his uh, death that reconciles us to God. And uh, he is our father, and we have access to one father by the same spirit, the Holy Spirit. We thank you that uh, you are building us, you live in us, and you are building us and expanding your temple over the face of this earth as you live in us by your spirit. Father, I particularly pray for the fathers here this morning, that you'll give them wisdom, grace, love, peace, that they would be able to uh, exhibit and demonstrate these things in uh, in their lives and uh, in the lives of their families. Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.